Just remember, this is a collaborative effort. We don't have time for creative differences or outbreaks of artistic integrity. Welcome to AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks with co-hosts, myself, Ramia Amadan, and Jacob Shemansky. Hello, as well as technical producer Nisreen Abdel-Majid. A quote of the week was picked by Jacob. You know, it's been a while since I've picked, so next one I'm picking. But anyway, quote of the week, what's that about? Uh, this one is from Greg Cox from The Best Seller Job. Uh, this is an author who, okay, this is kind of meta. So we're talking about co-authoring today. Mm -hmm. Uh, this guy, he did a lot of novelizations of movies and TV shows and would often reach out to like these writing staffs on like how to write this book. So that's a type of co-authoring, but also in this specific book, the bestseller job, this book is, this book is about (laughs) co-authoring. Oh, how did you and find the quote that? is about co-authoring. Did you go specifically look for a quote about co-authoring? Is that how you got uh, here? Tell us. I, no, my, my methods are um, confidential. <laughs> Top secret. Okay, I'm going to assume that my guess was absolutely correct. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but as you said, we are going to be talking about co-authoring because, you know, we often think about authoring itself as a very independent isolating endeavor but it doesn't have to be there is a very strange world out there of co-authoring and we'll get to why it's strange when we talk to our peoples karen mckay and Teresa power of the center for equitable library access also we got know your narrator in the second half of the show with sarah hillis she's featuring emily Wu zeller very interesting person with some interesting uh, outlooks on narration and somewhere in there, we're going to find time for the book club question of the week slash month. What books give you wintry vibes? I know, so complex. Um, but yeah, let's get, before we get to Sela talk, let's get to the Sela homepage. These are the three titles that are currently up there. The Armor of Light, Kingsbridge number four by Ken Follett. And this is a historical fiction. We also got Starling House by Alex Hero, which is a romantic suspense, and The Running Grave by Robert Galgrave, which is a gentle mysteries. Okay, Sila Talk. Once a month, we check in with uh, Karen McKay and Teresa Power from the Center for Equitable Library Access to chat anything and everything in the literary world. Teresa is the content and access librarian, and Karen is the communications manager at Sila. Both of you, welcome back. Welcome. This is our final Hello. one. Hello. Oh, so sad. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, Teresa, we were having this uh, email back and forth about intentions of 2023 and <laughs> the reading intentions that we had apparently put out there at (laughs) the start of the year i cannot for the life of me remember what my intentions were do you remember what your intentions were i think i had two specific books on my list and i actually do have the email thread i I did find it um and i think i think my intention at the beginning of the year was to really try and carve out more time for myself for reading books that I really enjoy um, because I'm part of so many reading programs and they're predominantly for YA and and kids books and it takes up so much of my time Mm. Um, so I I find that I have little time in the end to to read stuff that I that I really enjoy and 
Did you well, follow through? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're actually waiting for, Teresa. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I was uh, I was rambling to um, fill up the time there. Um, right. I have to say that uh, no, I, I think that it ended up being a complete failure. Um, I have books every oh every year. Our family's been giving um, at least a book for the holidays as a present. And I have to say that I have a couple years worth of books still here that I have to read from last Christmas. Uh, so uh, I guess my intention for next year is the same, is to try and carve out more time. Okay. And I'll, yeah. yeah, I'll have to figure out how to do that. Keep doing it until you get to it, right? Yeah, exactly. It is better than the gym memberships that go astray after two weeks or whatever they say the stats are for most of us. Um, Karen, did you have reading intentions of this year for the year, and did you follow through? Now we're just putting everybody on the I spot. Think my reading... Go ahead. Yeah, you are. Uh, I think I you know, people are going to go back and listen to the old ones and realize that I don't remember what I actually had for my intention. But I I feel like I was going to take the pressure off myself to to not try and read any sort of specific list or genre or whatever. Um, I read a little bit more this summer. We were very, uh, very privileged to be able to buy a cottage this summer. So there were a couple of afternoons on the dock that were just lovely with a book. Uh, yeah, which was amazing. And um, it felt a little bit like I could give myself permission to, you know, to sit and read versus being at home and, you know, having kids and dogs and volunteer commitments and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, I did read probably a little bit more this year than, um, than last year, but a lot of it was fluffy, which Still. was fine. Cause it was on the, on the dock. Yeah. It's all, yeah. it's, a, it's a numbers um, game. More books. It is more. a numbers game. Yeah. Uh, and I also read some stuff, you know, about cottage things like, you know, um, more technical kinds of things and also I picked up a really lovely book about it's a cottage journal which I would read a sort of a chapter of each time we were up there it sort of follows this one family through the through a series of 30 years of cottage ownership and so um, so that was really lovely to kind of connect to where I was with what I was reading Um, yeah so you know my intentions for the coming year probably similar just find books that that move me that I want to read and um, give myself the permission to to sit and not be productive in the way that we think about being mm. productive in society today and just, you know, sink into a book. You I know, that it. reminds me of something um, that happened uh, when I went on like a vacation with my family, like about like 10 years ago. Basically, with another family, we rented this massive house on the beach in Maryland. And in that house, there was like... Uh, a little journal like a notebook where the people who rented the place invited people to just write down like oh what did you do on your week here and basically there were entries like dating back to like 15 years so you got like this picture of like everybody that went in there and almost like told the story like you could tell like what people were up to where people were at in their lives it was such an interesting little story it was real i thought it was awesome so (laughs) reminds me of your journaling I, I think we all read a, a book maybe we weren't expecting to read, which was the Britney Spears memoir. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that was easy to pick up, though, because yeah, I, I think we all wanted to know true. what happened there. Yeah. It was such yeah. an interesting story just in the news that when I found just out, w- when you suggested to read this book, I was like, oh, she has a biography? Absolutely. I'm reading that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am reading that. Mm-hmm. Like, no question. Is is it Barbara Streisand that I feel that way about the next one? I 
can't remember, but as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah. And then also a lot of people picked up Matthew Perry's book this year, right, because of his death and and to how quickly it was, like, less than a year to having released the book, him passing away. But, guys, talk about a side note. Um, Now we're going to get into the strange world of co-authoring, and I'm... I don't know who brought this up. It might have been Teresa. It might have been me. Uh, but only for me because I find it to be interesting, the the kind of ways that co-authoring is delivered, uh, how people end up doing this kind of thing. And also, to be very honest with you, sometimes I'm like, this book was co-authored? I only knew the famous person as one of the authors. I didn't even know there was a second person involved. So- what I find most interesting is... Like, how do you actually, like, logistically manage writing a book together? Like, That's I'm just picturing too. two people on a sofa just, like, passing the keyboard back and no forth. Way. Like, it's, like, two kids no passing way. a video game controller back and forth. Not when one of them's an actual author and the other one's just an influencer, right? Because So, it's just, like, some person laying back on a couch just, like, uh, what if uh, we do this? And then the other person writes you know what down I see the audience. <laughs> I see it as a business offer. I'm the famous person. I go up to like someone who actually knows the subject and I say, hey, I want to write this book, but I have no idea how to do it. You're an actual writer slash know a bunch about this. So can we get together? Anyways, mm. these are all this, the um, speculations. Teresa, do you have more to say? Because I feel like you have the most uh, yeah. idea of what co-authoring is. So, I mean, I think co-authoring can go one of many different ways and I've seen it in a number of different ways I suppose I think the one that's becoming more and more popular and you know doing collection development for Sila I I'm seeing increasingly more is this like I like an actual I say actual quotation marks author you know like an author that we're familiar with um partnering up with someone who is not within the realm of like of books or publishing or anything but who is famous so I'm thinking like Louise Penny and Hillary Clinton and um, James Patterson and Bill Clinton or more recently there was a collab for a book called Reykjavik um, by Ragnar Jonasson, who is a, a really well-established noir writer, and he partnered with the Prime Minister of Iceland to write a book. So I think those are becoming, seemingly becoming more and more popular. And I think you're, you're onto something there, Ramya, when you say that there's definitely like a business angle, business venture there going on where, you know, one person can tap into um, perhaps an audience that they, you know, they've never been able to tap into before. And you Mm. get new readers or you get new followers, depending on who it is because of this collaboration. It it kind of, uh, it, it makes me think that, Sometimes when these partnerships happen, it's to lend credibility to the person that's uh, more famous. Like I'm thinking of uh, in a situation like Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton wrote their memoirs. Uh, They had a couple prominent uh, co-authors tag on because like we don't know these people as authors. So Mm -hmm. sometimes you scoff and think like, is it really going to be well written though? But if you see Mm -hmm. like, uh, who was it that co-authored those books, by the way? Uh, I, uh, the Louise Penny one, Hillary Clinton, and yes. uh, James Patterson and Bill Clinton. 
but I, I think it's really interesting, the Hillary Clinton one, um, at least, well, I mean, it's all very interesting, but I've seen Hillary Clinton speak in person and there is something very interesting, I'd say, in her attempt to like connect with people on a human level. And um, when I saw her, you know, you can agree with her her ideas and like what she's behind and all that. But when you see her, there's there's a lack, or I felt that there was really like a lack of connection being made there. And I wonder mm. if in part, huh. partnering with someone like Louise Penny, who is, she's Canadian, but she has really gone beyond the borders of just Canada. She's like internationally recognized. Um, and and is you know fetid for her for her books, that it takes Hillary Clinton out of that like political kind of bubble and puts her someplace else to where she can like connect with people on a different level. Books do that often anyway, right? Like when we get into a memoir, period that's what's happening like you're getting to know this person is more of a human being or like them stepping away from the spotlight to let us in so this would be an interesting way to do that um state of terror is the title of the book by louise penny and hillary clinton and the president is missing is uh james patterson and bill clinton so there's one that i read which is modern romance by aziz Ansari and eric klinberg who's the psychologist um kind of like giving us the goods on what's going on and it's really about you know dating in the modern world what people are up to in our own neighborhoods but also around the world and different cultural shifts and things like that I thought this was interesting because Aziz Ansari is a comedian who basically at the start of the book was like I was just curious and I couldn't uh maintain any relationship so I wanted to get to the bottom of the dating world and then you know enter the actual author is what I'm I say, allegedly, uh, Eric Klinberg, who gives us all the facts behind the curiosity. So you know how you said, Teresa, there is a new audience, there's um, more people that you try to bring in as an influencer. So hence this kind of like business endeavor. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's can feel so much more basic than that, where somebody can literally say, I'm curious about this subject. How do I get it out there? and uh you know put my name on it this way mm -hmm. so it lends some like uh some credibility to to oh, yeah, yeah to the book yeah like would you take this more seriously than a blog post or an instagram post from aziz if he had just oh, said absolutely. i'm curious about the dating world yeah <laughs> absolutely i mean i think that i would be expecting two different kinds of books like one maybe more on the the humorous side, I suppose. Yeah, and then, the lighter side. And mm -hmm. then if you bring in someone who is quite knowledgeable and educated in in um, that subject, it, it makes it's it a different kind of book, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the co-authors also allow for sort of an approachability that might not be there. Like, would you pick up a book written by a, you know, a psychology professor or an anthropologist or something on modern love or would you pick up one that sort of has that runway that entry point from a, a comedian that you follow and then you know then you can get into the sort of deeper topics but it's framed in a way that makes it maybe more accessible for folks um 
so I think that that's an interesting aspect of the whole thing as well. Just that, you know, what are these partners um, and what are they contributing each from a, you know, from a cultural perspective? I think that's an interesting point too, because there may be some people who are rather like self-help book adverse, you know, they're like, I don't need a self-help book. I would never read a self-help book, you know? Um, But that's kind of what this would be right but it's it's a a different entry point for for that Mm. yeah that's fair too It, it exactly what karen said right like we're more likely to pick up something if we because you know like the psychologist and the anthropologist may not have the personality even um to write the book on their own and make it (laughs) like viable for a pop audience Right. Like they may not be even writing in the way or the editors would have to do the job to kind of make it more approachable, more accessible, uh, where we can kind of lean into it. And that's not always the case. So then right. Enter because just just because you're brilliant in a certain topic, it doesn't mean you're a good writer or you're good at expressing those yeah. your your ideas. Right. You need someone who's better at expressing themselves, even though they themselves don't have the expertise. That's where like I could see the potential of a partnership of a co-authoring situation like this. Right. It's just kind of sucky in the sense that the people behind the info, like in this case, Eric uh, Klinenberg, doesn't get mentioned, doesn't always get mentioned. Like you think of this book and you think of the face of the book being Aziz and not necessarily um, the other person who was co-authored. And that's when it starts to get a little challenging for me. It's interesting if we go back to the Clinton books, both of them... Uh, in in both situations, both authors have a very large presence. Right. Um, uh, you know, both Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were authors before they did this co-authoring project, but they were sort of more memoirs or political books or um, like Hillary Clinton wrote that book about uh, It Takes a Village. I don't know, that's probably 30 years ago mm. now, maybe. Um, so they were authors. So they brought some credibility in terms of of writing but neither one of them had done as far as I know any fiction work and so to to partner with those two very popular fiction writers um, and to write sort of crossover books political books uh, in a in a fiction format I wonder if that you know part of that is just you know a bucket list thing for them that they want to move into a different kind of writing or to to be known for a different kind of writing um, and that they bring uh, you know, a very different set of uh, expertise to the to the authoring of a book about, you know, a president or um, secretary of state. Mm. So, yeah, I just thought that that was an interesting thing. How much of it is um, sort of a memoir-ish for them or based in any kind of factual real life situations and how much of it was just stuff that they imagined maybe they were the stuff of nightmares when they were actually serving as politicians yeah what this reminds me of a little bit is this idea in hip-hop of all things uh where there's this huge emphasis on writing your lyrics yourself and there's a huge disdain for what they call ghost writing i feel like that does exist to an extent in the world of authoring books right where some people do have ghost writers and there is a bit of a bit of stigma behind that, but there is prestige to writing a book yourself. So that's why, like we were talking about a book that has, it's uh, it's it's based on the knowledge of an expert in a certain topic, 
but is kind of lended credibility by some other person who has more uh, charisma or clout. There's something about if the book was written by one person that it's a brilliant person that also has that charisma and mm. writing chops. I feel like that book would be more almost uh, what's the word? More valid, more more credible in a sense. Like it's more an expression of one person's identity. It's more it's right. a more true personal representation. That's a really interesting point because and and it goes back to what we said earlier about like, you know, just because you know how to write or what to write about or how to explain it doesn't mean that people are going to buy in. Right. And maybe, yeah, we're putting a lot of that pressure of buying in or we're just used to um, with the branding of or like, you know, how how much we trust you is more on how well you can. Like leap into our interests and pique our curiosities that way but it doesn't necessarily mean that this person is doesn't have something interesting to offer can i throw a, a bit of a wrench or maybe maybe this is a wrench in in that so i was thinking about a husband and wife couple um they go by uh the writing name lars kepler and they're uh, a swedish couple and there was a lot of like brouhaha, a lot of uh, conversation about who was Lars, who was Lars Kepler. Nobody knew in the beginning of the, of the publication, like who who is this Lars Kepler? And um, the, it was actually there was like quite a lot of speculation. It was quite a thing about you know trying to figure out in the me- like media was trying to figure out who this Lars Kepler was. And they first thought it was Henning Mankell, who was also like a really well-known writer. Um, but Mankell said, no, this, is, this isn't us. Um, and uh, eventually it came out that it was this, this Swedish couple. And they said that the pseudonym was a method for writing together mm. without limitations. Well, the secrecy around it stemmed from a desire to let Lars Kepler, the pseudonym, stand on his own two legs and have his books assessed without prejudice. Hmm. And I believe if one, if not both of both of them, like the, of the couples, were already established writers themselves. So it let these books kind of standalone from whatever they've done before and allowed them to be free to 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 yeah. write what whatever they wanted to write which i believe was quite different from what they were um originally right um, so it was writing. a conscious decision to use a pen name to kind of hide the fact that it was a duo it was a similar situation to the authors of the expanse it was two guys that actually wrote it but they go uh, they they use the pseudonym uh, James S. A. Corey. Um, so it, it seems like they do this on purpose, just to to take away mm. that I'd argue stigma of co-authoring. I, I still I genuinely think that's a real thing. Um, I find the whole 
business aspect of co-authoring really interesting. Um, a really interesting case study here is Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, mm-hmm. which were two massive fantasy authors at the time in 1990 when this book came out. Except what they decided to do in publication was because Neil Gaiman was much more popular in the United States and Terry Pratchett in the UK. In the UK, the book was titled was uh, had the author Terry Pratchett, and in the United States, they published with Neil Gaiman as the author. Oh, interesting! So, yeah, a lot of people didn't oh, know that it was co-authored. Okay. That would and, be confusing as hell. <laughs> yeah, it does say like in the notes in the book yeah. that it is co-authored, but like the big name on the front will say Neil Gaiman in the United States and Terry Pratchett in the UK. Oh, gosh. Ah, so it was a very yeah. business strategic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's interesting to see how far that kind of thing can go too, right? Like when it starts feeling like a merge, if they did it on purpose to kind of separate it out in the beginning. Yeah, I um, I was thinking back to like to James Patterson and he is just absolutely everywhere from a purchasing standpoint i don't know that a month goes by where there isn't some sort of james patterson book to purchase um and he has a number of different series and kids series and adult series happening at the same time and i saw this quote uh, just to mm. speak to like the business aspect of of co-authoring uh, so the quote is um to maintain the pace of production patterson now uses co-authors on nearly all of his books wow he functions in part as an executive producer and in part as a head writer. It's his vision that is set out for each book or series. Then he ensures that his writers stick to what he set out. This just blew my huh. mind. Like I see month to month that I, I just, I can't imagine how a writer can put out a right. book every month or books every month. And this is just clearly how he does it. It's 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 well, not it's even mind. like we're talking books anymore. Like I feel like we're getting into the realms of rights and TV and uh, you know how how things are done yeah. in big production circumstances. Hollywood. It yeah. feels like Hollywood. Um, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? It could be a factory scenario. It's just I think we hold precious this. You know, a book is a person and identity as you were saying Jacob earlier and so when we think of this stuff I almost see it as like what can this be possible like how do you even do this well I wonder if readers feel betrayed that's, that's how I feel that, right great attach point. themselves yeah. yeah attach themselves to a an identity and then it's it's not there it's interesting because there's a similar thing happening with the um, Jack Reacher series which was originally written by Lee Child, which is a pen name. Um, and he's now taking over doing production parts to, to bring that series to, I think it's Netflix, but I'm not 100% sure. And his brother's taking over writing the actual oh. book. So they're transitioning the character from one author to, to, the, to another. And I wonder in the same sort of way, will people feel betrayed? Will it, will you be looking for differences? Absolutely. And they've already, there's already some differences, right? Like the Jack Reacher character, if people are familiar, is sort of like a uh, technophobe. And in, in the ones that, I think his name's Andrew Reacher, uh, Andrew Grant rather, sorry, um, is writing his, he's using the pen name Andrew Childs to keep it consistent. But he's, you know, given this character a cell phone and he started to move him into the, 
maybe the 20th century. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, it'd be interesting to see how, uh, how readers react to that, because I think that there's a, an attachment, right, to, to the author and to the experience of reading a person's thoughts versus a, you know, a conglomeration's right. thoughts. I think this has happened, I want to say this has happened for the Bourne series as well, where the more recent books in that series have been authored by somebody else, as well as The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm. I believe there's oh. a new yeah, book right. that just came out but by mm. a different author, but continuing that huh. Same thing with the uh, Dune series. Uh, a couple of the last books in the series were written by uh, the original author, Frank Herbert's son. So a bit of nepotism there. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we already get so flustered or picky when you know, authors die or authors put away things. And then we're like, well, somebody else carry on like a Scarlet after Gone with the Wind, right? And though, mm -hmm. even in those circumstances, though, you can say it's understandable, um, still, oh, yeah. oh, we're yeah. not it's necessarily satisfied, though. And we You we wish it came from the mind of the original author because yeah. you wonder what their plans were. That's what were, it is. Right? That's what it is. We put so much of that into what they're giving us it's a part of them so now it no longer feels like that who's the guy you um jacob highlighted a couple of weeks ago on the episode the one who basically makes a factory out of writing books brandon sanderson he's the exactly. one that uses uh, like a massive team of editors although he doesn't consider himself an executive producer like patterson does that's why i found that distinction interesting mm. interesting for sure i wonder how many of those popular authors the ones that end up on the bestseller list who have more than one book out a, um, a year, I would say, actually do that kind of stuff, but just isn't yeah, that's broadcasting fair. it to people. Yeah, we I don't just know. Think about it. it used to be something that you wanted to keep under wraps, right? Like all the Nancy Drew books were written by, I can't remember how many authors, but mm. they, they were perpetuated over time by these different authors. But that was a big sort of secret. It was wasn't it? well known. And Scandalous. So, yeah. But I feel like that, yeah, again, with the bigger series, longer series, you're just trying to retain an audience and it just keeps going and going. It makes much more sense to do that. Yes. I'm not as, yeah. as hurt. <laughs> Karen, Teresa, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Um, have a blessed rest of your year, and we will catch back up with you in January. Great. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. We were speaking with Karen McKay and Teresa Power from the Center for Equitable Library Access. That puts a wrap on co-authoring. But, of course, we got much more conversation coming your way on this episode. Sarah Hillis is coming back with Know Your Narrator. And we're getting to this week's book club question. What books give you wintry vibes? We'll be right back. It's AMI Audiobook Review. Welcome back. It's AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. And of course, we are bringing in a guest because there's only so often that we like to talk amongst ourselves. And it's Know Your Narrator time because once a month we like to feature a notable narrator in the world of audiobooks with Sarah Hillis. And we get to know their personalities, shout out those voices, and of course their backgrounds. Sarah, we are going to get to Know Your Narrator shortly. But first, um, we thought it'd be fun to bring you in on the book club question and shout out some of the responses we got from the book club peoples and of course hear your thoughts on the question which is what books give you wintry vibes so easy what an easy question we don't always give out easy <laughs> questions huh jacob 
Mm, 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 no. You know what gives me wintry vibes? <laughs> the studio right now. It's freezing. It's freezing. It's so <laughs> cold. It's freezing. So, Sarah, uh, let's start with you. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I tend to feel that winter is a time to to really get into something big. So either it's an old series I've read before, like, say, the Harry Potter series, or sometimes I do Tolkien, sometimes I do C.S. Lewis, uh, some one or two of his series. Uh, this year, I'm actually going to do Gone with the Wind for the first time uh, ever. Uh, okay. And uh, possibly the sequel, too, called Scarlet, which was not written by the author. No. But uh, I saw the like, made-for-TV movie, you know, mm. so... Um, yeah, so I might be diving into those. Um, Are you starting it in 2023 or after the new year? It'll be in 2023 when my Audible credits come, okay. <laughs> which is tomorrow. Actually. Oh, no, it's a Friday, actually. Mm. Yeah. And then you might finish it in 2024. So, you know, you're scaling yeah, that boundary. Mm. So you yeah. like getting into uh, longer works during the holidays. I'm guessing that's just because of a factor of time. Just have more time yeah, on and, and during the winter, I just like to kind of, winter in general, I just like to dive into just something that's going to really immerse me in a big way. Um, of course, during the holidays, I, I mean, Dickens, what else can you do? You've got to read A Christmas Carol if you're a Dickens fan like True. me uh, and and uh, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Just just big books. Big books. And not familiarity, right? Like a lot of not, people not talk about their coziness and going back to things. Yeah, sometimes I go for the cozy feel of I've read this 800 times and I just want to read it again. Mm-hmm. Like a... Like a warm bath or something, right? I like yeah. to do that. But <laughs> it's true though. Don't scoff. It's you just true. He can scoff if he mm. wishes. That wasn't a scoff. It that was a chuckle. Like it. it was a breathy chuckle. It was like, ha, was breathy... ha, you silly. Oh, okay. <laughs> she said bath on the radio. Do you podcast. ever read in the bathtub? <laughs> no. I'm afraid I'll kill myself with some electronic <laughs> device or something. It's not oh. a toaster. <laughs> <laughs> the iPad fire. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> You, let's listen to Kamini, Kamini Rodhan, who's a frequent listener of the show and responder of the book club question. She's got something to say as well. I think I might, especially in the wintertime. I tend to read a lot more because I like to stay inside a lot more, which means more reading for me. Um, in terms of books, uh, I think I prefer to read maybe longer and heavier books in the wintertime as well, too. Bye for now. Okay, so she she goes into heavy books during mm. the holidays. Why do you think that might be? I can't read her mind. I kind of wish we had her with us right now, but what do, you, what do you think that is? Maybe because you're more open to having heavier reads uh, in colder, darker days because you feel like a heavier person. You know how in the summer, like, mm. we crave just lighter books? Like, I really don't want to get into something deep, dark, scary, uh, reflective when I just want to be out by the beach and having a good time and listening to pop radio. Right. Nobody's listening to Dostoevsky in July. Oh, my gosh. And like, Except me. <laughs> the other thing is Christmas time, it's always around the time of year where the nights are at their longest. Yeah. Right? So it is literally a darker time of year. It is. And I think that... a like, honestly, not to get too deep about it, but mental health-wise, like, we're just maybe at different places, significantly some of us, than we are during longer, sunnier, warmer days. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's been clinically proven that, yeah. like, mental health really takes a dip when you get less sunlight, which is 
Yeah. Make, just makes me think, why would you want to live somewhere along the Arctic Circle? Right. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. my God. That sounds miserable. A whole different convo. Do you want to read the next uh, response mm-hmm. from Michelle McLaughlin? Danielle McLaughlin, who is a regular contributor on Kelly and Rumia, uh, she said, oh, good question. I asked my granddaughter who's visiting us, and she says for her, winter reading is American Southern Gothic literature. We're going to have to analyze this one as well. Very specific. Very, very. She includes As I Lay Dying and The Sound of the Fury by William Faulkner. I prefer, this is back to Danielle, not her granddaughter, I prefer humorous literature in the winter because the bleak days can really get to me. At the moment, I'm reading some funny short works by David Zadaris. And uh, he narrates his own audiobooks, and it makes her laugh a lot. (laughs) Mm, I can get behind that. Okay, so we got he, two like he, his oh, polar opposites cool. of responses. He's cool, Sarah. You got experience. David Sedaris is awesome at narrating his his books because he's so ironic and just like deadpan about his humor, and it's just great. What kind of book? Like, what does he write about? Is it fiction? Uh, it's mostly like kind of personal essay type stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's he's a as I say, he's a wry comedian, and yeah, he gets to the heart of the craziness of the world, and it's cool. The last answer is from uh, Debbie Williams. I don't have a special read for the, for the holidays because I don't typically reread books. There are so many out there that I always pick something new. I like romantic books to keep me in the spirit. Christmas is a romantic type of year, isn't it? Yeah. You go back to uh, go see your family sometimes and everybody's coupled up. You get cozy. I mean, we hope to be. You hope to be. <laughs> There's always that, oh, God, I need someone to bring to my family dinner. <laughs> Conversations <laughs> you hear all the time. <laughs> Everyone's going to be bringing someone. I'm the only one who doesn't have anybody. Oh, but it's true. Yeah, I, I think we often see the holidays as like um, a time to mark the passage of time. Yeah. Where it's like every time you get to the holidays, you always think back on the year. And that's romantic in that's a sense. romantic. Also, you, like, want to be with someone during the holidays because the holidays are so festive. And that's why the opposite of, like, having conversations around loneliness around the holidays is very sad and hard for people. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I I always get um, heartwarming feelings every time I hear stories of, like, a family that um, takes in somebody who doesn't have a family to spend the holidays with. I I always love that. Yeah. Now, wait, back to this, uh, what do we call it? Dark Southern Gothic literature? American Southern Gothic literature. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is that even? So oh, I actually it's... looked it up. Apparently, a Gothic genre is, it has to do with a, a setting that's typically very like grotesque and decaying, and there's a lot of like kind of spooky, supernatural characters. Whoa. And if it's Southern, it has to do with like the, uh, the social fabric of the South kind of falling apart, but if it's done in like the Gothic style, it's because everything is decaying. Like think crumbling architecture, like rinky-dink little towns and swamps and spooky people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Faulkner's not supernatural. He's a, it's a family. It's a family and families have secrets and it's, that's juicy. It's it's very, very dark and uh, ominous, I guess. That's juicy. I love all of these. I kind of am starting to take these as recommendations of what to read for the winter, um, which is nice. Uh, by the way, I go, this is the time of year when I'm more most likely to read fantasy. Yeah. So maybe I'll start cool. reading the uh, Lies of Locke Lamora again, Jacob. You better. 
<laughs> this is driving me nuts. I knew it'd be a sore you made throat. a promise. <laughs> I did. I'm sorry. Oh my god! Before I get too riled up, let's uh, <laughs> let's move on to the whole reason we brought Sarah on. Um, know your narrator. Who are we featuring today? Emily Wu Zeller is her name. Uh, she's a golden voice for Audiophile magazine, so they gave her that in 2020. Mm-hmm. She's been narrating books since about 2009. Um, I don't have a number of books, but she's been doing a heck of a lot. Um, and she is one of these, her books often make the best of, of audiobook lists. You know, most years there's an Emily Wu Zeller or a couple on, on the list. And I don't know if it's because of her always or because of the author, but she's a very good narrator. So I would think it's a lot of times because of her. <laughs> Any like patterns or the word I think of is typecasting of what she will read or does she do everything? I think she reads anything and everything that she thinks is cool to read um mm. but uh, but she's been you she's been she's worked a lot on um asian and asian american literature because she can do uh, especially chinese and other asian accents um pretty pretty well so yeah. they like to have her read mm. those and she likes to read them too because they're not always well you know well promoted and she likes to spread the word about this this cool these cool genres um or not genres but types of literature i suppose um because, I mean, she she says in one of her interviews, there is no real Asian-American literature genre. There's Asian-American people writing literature across all kinds of genres. Right. So. Hmm. Oh, that's yeah. so fair. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It, like, it feels like such a light bulb moment hearing that, actually. Because, yeah, I've never heard that before. Right? That's a really good point. Because it's the same, well, I guess we're getting a little further along with, like, LGBTQ representation. Yeah. But even yeah. that, I think, was at a point where you could say the same thing. Like, you're representing authors of the LGBTQ plus community, but not necessarily the literature genre. Same thing with indigenous uh, writing. Okay. Yeah. Carry on. You brought us a uh, clip from uh, from Emily. You want to take a listen? Yeah. This is actually from an um, LGBTQ um, book. Um, it's published. It's by Ali Temple. It's called Unleashed. It's published by Ali Temple Books, Allison Temple Books. So uh, it's independently published, and Emily did the narration for it's. It's number three in this this p- series about lesbian pirates, as Emily said to me. <laughs> if you rub that any harder, we'll have to cover your eye with a patch. I started at the familiar voice as Mero settled into the chair beside me. For a moment, I'd forgot about the eye I'd been rubbing for the better part of the last five minutes. I had no doubt the entire left side of my face must be puffy and red. But whatever flake of grit or dust had settled under my eyelid was still there, making tears stream over my cheek. Might as well get me a stumpy leg and knock out a few of my teeth to complete the look, I grumbled. It's what everyone expects anyway. The reception hall in the Vestrian Palace, with its high ceilings, and hung with the banners of Queen Charest's court. The space could have held hundreds, and while it was far from full, enough people were gathered that more than half of the chairs set out in the gallery were occupied, and strangers had no doubt been forced to sit next to each other. Yet the chairs nearest to me on all sides, and even the rows in front and behind of me, were empty. Sarah, she kind of sounds like you. (laughs) Really? I find it. Actually, yeah. <laughs> she does, wow. doesn't she? Like, the tone well, is know. not necessarily very... you, but I feel like if you were to read this book, it might sound similar. Sarah, it <laughs> sounds like you, but like 20 years older. Oh, my God. That's, 
Oh my god. Just a thicker um, voice. Just what yeah, I was thinking. It's, well, it's funny you should say that because I'm reading a book called which is awesome by the way, called My Ex My Best Friend's Exorcism oh. by Grady Hendrix. Ooh. And she uh, narrates that. And it's about teenagers in the eighties. Oh. Um and so she, in that book she's got a higher a higher register that she uses for narration. Now it was back in for the default or something. Yeah, for the default narration oh. because it's it's told from the point of view of one of the friends, and uh, uh, like it's told in the third person, but it's her point of view throughout the book. So she's she's it's it's a it's a higher tone. I think that's what she's really good at is changing her register to fit different types of books. She even said when I asked her for the sample, she said, "Well, what do you want? Because my style's different no matter what what I do. So what are you looking for?" And uh, yeah, so. Uh, she she's she's quite versatile in that way so it's one thing to change your register change your voice for certain characters but it's another thing to do it for the standard voice like you put it ramya like to do the narration voice in as a character for an entire book that's that's very demanding yeah i think that um for these kind of i guess you know how you said she's good with accents she's really like invested in the representation side of things uh but then there's like the theater side right so i'm very curious about what background she has for what she does or how she came yeah. upon this yeah well she's born in california lived in primarily asian communities growing up um and she uh really um got into that world, I guess, living, you know, in, in these communities. Um, she, she did, um, enter, she did performance studies at, at college and dance and things. Um, and she decided to go to Asia to see if she could get some work. Cause she, she wanted to just get out of her little place and go somewhere cool and new. And her sister had already gone there. So she thought, well, I'll hang out with my sister for a while and uh, see what I can do. And she decided to get work voicing anime, like doing English, English dubbings of anime hmm. in, in Hong Kong. And she said that when she did that, they were doing like four episodes a day, which is not usually what American studios would do and not usually what's done nowadays. It's, it's a lot less you know, demanding, but four episodes of these shows a day and you had to switch characters like boom, 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 really quickly. Right. And, and so she learned fire. a lot of, yeah, she learned a lot of really cool, uh, cool stuff doing, doing that. Um, and then uh, yeah, she came back to America and thought she'd try her hand. She wanted to do voiceover work for sure, like commercials and whatever else she could get. Voiceover work was what she really wanted to focus on in many ways. Um, and so she sent in a, a professional or an, an, what she thought was an unprofessional demo, actually, oh. to uh, BBC Books America, which now is Audio Go. Wait, I'm curious about uh, the demo. I don't know what it was. She didn't yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> but um and then they said hey you're we want you so uh, she started working for them and then as time went on she worked for more publishers and uh made a go of it uh, has her own little studio that she works from and kind of it's her own little business and uh that kind of thing so yeah she says she's an introvert and that was a big part of her moving to doing voice work yeah like she does she has done theater work but i mean she's not like She's not like super comfortable, I guess, out in front of everybody all the time. So to have that rest to just go in the studio and and do it is cool. But she also says she does miss the collaboration of theater work when she when she gets to do mm. theater. It is nice to collaborate on stuff. Um, and in the studio, I don't get to do that usually. 
So we obviously talked about that representation aspect for her, but she's done all kinds of genres and uh, types of books, I guess. Oh, yeah. Fantasy, uh, literature, fiction, romance, uh, nonfiction, including um, the life-changing magic of tidying up by Marie Kondo. <laughs> and that was one of the, was one of the books. Yes. That was one of the books that really got people to know like who she was because yes. they actually wrote to her and they said, like, I wouldn't I might not have done this if I just read the book. But your narration was so friendly and nice that I thought maybe I'll try, you know. Yeah, and you like a nagging mom type of voice yeah. to do that. Yeah, you were that infomercial, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, that's a difficult read to do because uh, by the title, that sounds super condescending. Yeah. Did, did, did Recondo either... is? No. No! He doesn't okay. know? After what? this, you got to oh go check out Marie Kondo. She like made a new invention of tidying. What is it? If you what? touch it and it gives you joy, keep it. If not, throw it out. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing. And she said uh, much more. Now she said, really. since she had kids, she's not so into tidying. Because oh, really? It's too hard. We're yeah, shocked. She, she's finding it's too hard. And Aww. Like, oh. <laughs> wow. First time a new mother has ever said that. Way to yeah, backpedal. Right. Yeah. Also, yeah. <laughs> what is this doing for your marketing, lady? <laughs> Recall all your books. Refund everyone. I think honesty is a good thing. That's fair. No, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm buying it. Um, (laughs) Okay. Did she have a big break moment, Sarah? Back to Emily, by the way. Not Marie Kondo. That was it. That that their book. It it was so viral because the book was so viral and the audiobook went viral too, just because. And everyone was like, this... This is cool. She did a really good job. Mm. She tells another story of, of narrating a book called Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal by Mary mm. Roach, which is a science book um, uh, about the digestive system of all things. And she said she gave it to a friend of hers and said, maybe she'd be, she'd like, that was a cool gift. It's I, I made it. I narrated it. Well, she'll like this. And the friend <laughs> said, you know, I, I couldn't finish this book. It, it was too detailed. You know, I couldn't. Uh, it kind of made me feel ill. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but Emily loved it because it was so geeky and fun yeah, and yeah. interesting, right? So <laughs> It's, it's awkward, right? Like when you're in this field, I don't know if you guys have this, but when I want to recommend a podcast, especially to like a close friend or a, a family member, there's always a part of you that's like, but I'm in it. But it was so good. You got to listen. But if they mm. don't love it, then you're like, oh, it kind of feels insulting on me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like when someone, if someone asks you to recommend something yeah. and you're like, oh, uh, here's my music. I'm sure you'll like it. <laughs> here's my book. I wrote it. It's really good. Right. So, like, obviously she didn't recommend this yeah. because she read it. To, like, she was the narrator. Yeah. But also it's kind of like, I can't finish it. And I'm so sorry. It's not because of your narration. <laughs> yeah. Don't take it personally, but I didn't like this book. <laughs> but that's another thing about recommendations. That they kind of stick to you. So if you recommend a god-awful book, then yeah. you're going to go back to that person and be like, what? Why did you recommend me yeah. this? Like, and never again. Not coming to you for Yeah, I don't trust you anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is going to be problematic. Um, Sarah, what do you think of her narration? I know you said you're reading my friend's, what is it? My best friend? My best Ex- friend's Exorcism by yeah. Grady Hendrix, which is a total 80s love fest. Yeah. It's got demons. It's got, um, you know, crazy 80s stuff. It's just awesome. It's just totally ridiculously fun. Um, mm. <laughs> um, it, it, her narration's great. She can... Um, 
she can change emotional registers really quickly. Like if somebody had a bad night's sleep, for example, the narration which describes the bad night's sleep will sound like the person had a bad night's sleep. This is what went on and this is how horrible they mm. felt and that kind of thing. Not over the top, but it's there. Um, she can change pacing really quickly and well. Uh, so if it's a more reflective thing, it's slower. If it's an action thing, it's more clipped and and careful and you know precise, I suppose, to get the action sounding mm. fast. You know, uh, not not the, the narration doesn't speed up too much. It's just the way she narrates, right? It it, it sounds good. And uh, and and her narration of men. I had an interviewer who said she really liked her narration of men. And I think I agree with that because oh. uh, it's, it's, it's pretty subtle, <laughs> but it's there. You can tell it's men. And I had a friend who actually said that um, she had preferred men narrate, men um, voicing female characters in a book uh, rather than women voicing male characters in a book uh, because it just seemed to work better for her because it was like the men weren't trying too hard. They just kind of lightened their voice a little bit and it, and it sort of worked. And I thought that was an interesting point. Huh. Um, I think nowadays that the the women may not be trying so hard as they used to to make sure that this sounds like a man, right? Because mm. if if you just subtly lower your voice, yeah, that's and, plenty. And the and the attribution is there, like Chris said or whatever. Exactly. Like it's there. You know, you don't have to freak out about it. We actually have a clip of Emily Wu Zeller doing her her man voice. We've lost everything. The man on the reception room floor was saying, he was old enough to be my father, and while his severe dark clothes and wide vowels identified him as Red Mirian like my father, the straightness of his shoulders and the way he filled out his coat said he had never known hunger or struggle the way my father had. The Duke forced us from our home. He took everything we had. My sons were in the city, and both died of the fever in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay yeah yeah that's that's an older man that's kind of very you know, manly obviously a sort of support a supporting character i would say sometimes narrators go a little crazy with the little characters you know yeah, yeah that's true i've um, noticed that for sure yeah they do yeah. their wilder voices because they don't want to have to record five hours worth of some mm. crazy voice <laughs> <laughs> i know we're, no, i know we're almost out but i i do want to ask because she has this opinion emily um, about like talent versus skill building. Yeah, she she really believes that you really should have an ear for accents and languages. Just people just kind of have it, and then they can learn easily. Um, skill building is important, of course, but she she does believe that there's a little bit of talent that's got to just be there in in people for you to be able uh, to hear what's good, what's working, what's good, and what's not. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. some sort of raw talent. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I don't think there's any way of really proving that. I think it's just kind of a gut thing. Gut, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it's yeah. an opinion. It is, mm -hmm. yeah. Or you know, your idea of what's I often think that that's still skill, like your idea of what sounds good but then being able to execute that yourself, like perform it that way. Because sometimes yeah. your gap, right? That's why yeah. some people are talent scouts and not talented themselves. Oh, Ouch. <laughs> yeah. oh, boy. oh, their skill, their talent is finding people with sure. talent. That's a talent yeah. all of its That's own. That's the first part of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. This was the Know Your Narrator segment, and you were featuring Emily Wu's LA. Yeah, no problem. Talk to you next month. 
Bye. Next week, we're going to be talking about a series that's near and dear to the hearts of a lot of people in the millennial generation. That's you and me, Ramya. Mm. Um, and we're getting a regular AMI contributor who's also a massive podhead, Grant Are Hardy. Are we allowed to say that? It's Potterhead. <laughs> I'm making a joke. I know you tried to get <laughs> away with it. <laughs> I was getting to it. <laughs> That's right. We're uh, we're reviewing Harry Potter finally from a 2023 perspective because Harry Potter oh. has a complex legacy, oh, and no. uh, he's going to help us break it down because he's a massive Harry Potter fan. Yeah, I would say he's probably a bigger Potter head than me. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right. Anyways, we're looking forward to it. Also, you could still give us your responses for the book club question. What books give you wintry vibes? Call us 1-866-509-4545. Email us feedback at ami.ca. And that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's all, as Irene says on Kelly and Romeo. Okay, this is AMI Audiobook Review. And until the next episode, happy audiobook listening. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.